So this week, uh, Bailey and I had uh, Daniel and Michelle over for dinner, and they said something I was particularly happy to hear. Uh, I thought it was really cool when Michelle was like, you know, one thing I really appreciate about LCC is that this church doesn't shy away from teaching through really hard texts. And I know that that compliment was primarily for Mike, because he does the majority of the preaching, but he's not here. So I'm going to claim it. Thank you. And I sincerely hope in my bones that you each feel the same way and you, you enjoy that LCC teaches through really difficult, hard, uncomfortable texts. And if you do enjoy that, you're going to love today. <laughs> because today we have the opportunity to talk about sin. Now, why would we do that? Why would we, why would we venture into such a difficult topic? Uh, one that will surely make us each, you know, a little uneasy in our chair. Well, we're moving through the book of Romans kind of in a survey, at a survey pace. And the church in Rome wasn't planted by Paul. Paul had never been to visit this church before. And so the letter that he sends to the Roman church is as comprehensive, is as robust an explanation of the gospel in its fullness as he can. And so as we're going through now the beginning parts of the book of Romans, gospel explanations start with sin. They start with brokenness. And so, you know, that's hard to talk about. But fear not, my friends. We're going to do this as scientifically as possible. The personality and social psychology bulletin, of which you know I'm surely not an avid reader, but when a sermon calls for it, I'll, I'll venture through, talks about what they call emotional, oh gosh, what is it called? You can tell I don't know it. I'm going to have to look at it. Emotional protection priming, which essentially this is just a way of saying that when good news and bad news are both available to you at the exact same time, that in almost every instance, people will, will prefer to hear the bad news first. Because what this does is it shortens the amount of time you have to sit in the bad news, and the good news that follows directly after can be, for lack of a better word, the, the lasting taste in your mouth, right? So church, I have some good news, and I have some bad news. And, and, the mo and most of this will be bad news, yeah. But the duration of the bad news we discuss will be eclipsed by the scope of the good news, I promise you that. So shall we? Now hear a reading from Romans 1, 18 through 32, and 3, 10 through 24. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Because what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. So people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal human beings, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creation 
rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged the natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And likewise, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed in their passions for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what should not be done. They are filled with every kind of unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, malice. They are rife with envy, murder, strife, deceit, hostility. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, contrivers of all sorts of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, covenant breakers, heartless, ruthless. Although they fully know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but also approve of those who practice them. Just as, is, just as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together, they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness, not even one. Their throats are open graves. They deceive with their tongues. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their paths. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to the God. For no one is declared righteous before him by the works of the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law of righteousness of God, although it is tested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed, namely the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Father, with possibly, probably, heavy hearts, we sit in silence before you now. Speak to us about your word. Jesus, give your bride what she needs. Amen. So we, sp we spend a considerable amount of time, and rightly so, on the good news of Scripture, right? Like I, I think that's fitting. But I think this text is the articulation of the bad news of Scripture. And I'm going to try, if I can, to whittle everything we just heard in all of its intensity down into a single bad news phrase. And I'm just going to rip the band-aid off. Here it is. The bad news of Scripture is we deviated. We built for ourselves a kingdom, a really bad one at that. But we really like it. And God lets us have it. And you might be thinking, well, that's, that's not exactly what I heard in the text. It sounded like God is seriously irritated with his people. Like God is just flat out mad at us. And he's kind of, not for nothing, a little insulting maybe in the way he describes us. Like surely that's the bad news, right? Like our God is, is insulting and angry. Like, yeah, that would be bad news. 
Well, not quite. That's not really the bad news of this text. Remember, remember the, the initial part of our diagram from last week. Jesse, you can throw it up. It's not spectacular, but it's where we start. Just a circle with the kingdom of God. This is the story of scripture, at least how it began. God initiated a good, unified design. The marriage of heaven and earth in peace, in unity, in harmony, in fellowship. Everything operating in this sphere within his design for it. And the idea is that this would produce the deepest level of comprehensive human flourishing. So the serpent had something to say within this space, within this unified marriage of heaven and earth inside of God's design. He promised something more than this, and we were enticed by it. We were offered the opportunity to deviate outside of God's prescribed order and design. And honestly, it didn't sound all that bad. You know, we became convinced that life, life here in this purple circle within God's kingdom didn't afford us enough power. It didn't afford us enough opportunity. It didn't afford us enough freedom. And we had to take each of those things for ourselves we had to deviate from the one who was withholding those things from us. And what we saw in our diagram last week, and Jesse, you can throw up the next one, that when we became dissatisfied with life inside of God's design, we tried to initiate something more suitable for us, right? Heaven and earth became, at this time, detached realities. They became detached kingdoms. They became detached spheres of influence. And they operated under detached designs. And many of us speak of this kind of pulling apart of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man of heaven and earth as like a really harsh and undue punishment for what felt like a pretty nebulous disobedience. Like they ate fruit and you told them not to. Big deal. Like surely your response was unnecessary. It was far too harsh. But make no mistake, friends, all God did us, all, all God did was give us precisely what we wanted. We had become convinced that in order to be most happy, most powerful, and most free, we had to detach ourselves from his design for things and embrace something that we thought would be better. And the bad news, friends, is that we are still compelled by this same circle for the same reasons. I mean, the two most common refrains within our texts are they exchanged and he gave them up to the desires of their hearts. In other words, with great sigh and pain in his voice, he said, if you want it, you can have it. Like, you are allowed to make that exchange. You can go from my kingdom and design into one of your own. You can have it. I will give that to you. That's the refrain of our text. But then he also says, but before you embrace it fully, can I share with you the difference between what you create and what I have created and offered to you? 
And this is, this, is, this is a major part of Paul's explanation in what we just read, is a comparison of the kingdom that God created and offered to us and what we thought might be better and so created for ourselves. But then when we see it written out, it's folly to think that way. First, God points out, within his design is worship of the creator. Like things in their appropriate place, giving reverence where it's due as opposed to ours where we worship the creation. Like how futile, how empty, how backwards an idea. Next he says, within God's design is for truth to be plain and understood. Truth is celebrated. Truth is known and enjoyed by all. And within the kingdom we create for ourselves is the suppression of truth. The relativizing of truth as it suits us. Within God's design is the rejection of evil and within ours is the approval of it. Within God's design, his invisible attributes are plainly understood. Now, when I, when I read that, when you heard that for the first time, did you recognize how oxymoronic that idea is? The invisible attributes of God are plainly understood. Like those two things shouldn't accompany one another. You can't plainly understand the invisible, yet within the kingdom and design of God, the mysterious is near. There's just this idea of deep wealth of understanding and knowing as we're with him and near him and embracing his design. And then the antithesis of that, as Paul describes, is the darkening of our understanding and senselessness of our hearts. The invisible stayed invisible. And yes, I know you heard it. Even goes so far as to suggest um, that we have distorted the ideal uh, within human sexuality. And it's something I'll address because I have to. You know, it would it would be wrong for me to glance it off just to simplify a sermon. You know, as tempting as that might be. But I think it would be equally wrong to overemphasize this point because that would actually cause each of us to miss the larger motif of what Paul is saying if we were to really, really camp there, which unfortunately many tend to do. Our text describes our kingdom as, as a place of strife, for example. Okay, we agree that's wrong, but it can be a bit harder to identify, right? Like it's not quite as visible. Same with insolence, which I had to Google to even know the for sure definition of insolence. That can be hard to hide. So can heartlessness, ruthlessness, and envy. Each of these things describes a significant deviation of our kingdom outside of the design of God. But they can be hidden so easily. They can fester deep within the heart. They're not that visible an example. Sexuality is given broader mention here because it is a mostly visible example of the larger point being made. It reflects visibly the idea that we exchanged what he designed, his idea for something, with what we deemed to be better, more suitable, more appropriate for us, giving us the freedom that we were interested in. And this all has to come back to what is sin, right? Like when, when God speaks of sin, what is it he's talking about? What is it he's, he means? And we, and we tend to think of this as an, as an endless, arbitrary, imp 
impossible to predict a list of do's and don'ts. And in order to stay within the good graces of God, you know, you better stay on the right side of that list. But, you know, God's pretty fickle in the way he thinks about things. And so we are at the mercy of this really unpredictable God. And we try the best we can to avoid his anger staying away from sin, right? Well, none of that is true. This picture, you can put the picture of the two spheres, the two kingdoms, the two designs, the two ideals. This is sin. Sin is a reversal or deviation away from God's prescribed order. It is rebellion away from his ordered kingdom life because we would prefer establish our own. I mean, think again of the first temptation that fell upon the human heart. It wasn't something like, you should tell a lie because that will really piss off God. It was God's plan, God's design. It's not good enough for you. You deserve more than what he's offering. So take and eat. So when we talk of sin, it's not a list of things simply that annoy God. It's the very things that reject his design in order to replace it with our own. He says greed is a sin, right? Because it's counter to his design for harmony. He says lying is a sin because this runs counter to his design for honesty and unity. And he says same-sex relationships are a sin because they run counter to his idea for sexuality and relationship. And this is probably the hardest thing I'll say today, but if this strikes us as offensive, that might just prove the larger point that Paul's making, that we prefer, we would rather have life inside the kingdom we designed than the one that was offered to us. And, and I'll admit, I have to, that I'm, I'm pained deeply, personally, by this idea. I mean, some of the people I love most on this planet have been same-sex attracted forever. And I've had to be a part of these conversations where, where I'm asked, like, why, why isn't this something that God approves of? Wouldn't it be much easier for him to? Why, why? Why is this something he doesn't approve of? And ordinarily, you know, my mind will spin, my wheels will turn. And if I'm most honest, the place I have to reduce myself to is I'm not entirely sure I can answer that question perfectly. But at least I know he was clear. He ordered life within his kingdom in a particular way. He generated a design and he offered it to you and then said, and you're free to say no whenever you want. You are free to say no and think that you can create something better. And so when we say that God hates sin, what we're really saying is God hates the kingdom that you have established for yourself. He hates that you prefer your design to his. And here's why. It's just worse right? It's so much worse. He has better for you and he knows it. We have to understand that his hatred for sin 
is powerfully connected to his compassion and the favor that he feels for you. The intensity with which he wants you to be a part of his kingdom life forever. Now, it's entirely possible that you're thinking, this is crazy. Like, it's not, it's not that black and white. And, like, in what universe would, would I go as so, so far as to say that I can create something better than God did and then prefer it? Like, I would never actually do that, right? Like, there's maybe a few things I want to tweak, but all in all, like, I think his is better. Like, really? Like, do we, do we truly think that way? I think... I think we actually willfully deviate from his kingdom a lot. It, it's a really common thing in our kind of global Western experience in particular. Um, there's, there's a really common worldview now called protest atheism. And it's, it's this idea that if God offered me a ticket to heaven, I would say, no thanks, not as long as you're there. I don't want it, not as long as you're there. In C.S. Lewis's classic book, The Great Divorce, um, there's this character who's, who's prohibited from entering into heaven by this little lizard on his shoulder that keeps telling him lies. And this lizard is a pain to him. He, he, he scrutinizes the good things he does. He like celebrates the bad things he does. He's, he's nagging. He's loud. He screams. He's just constantly talking. He's just always there. And this character is positively fed up with this lizard that lives on his shoulder and won't stop talking. And so he, he sees this angel and he's like, oh my gosh, can you help me? Can you silence this little guy? And the angel says, of course. Can I kill it? And the man kind of shudders, and he's like, <laughs> I didn't want anything quite that intense. Like, you went to 11. No, you don't have to kill it. Can you just silence it for me? Like, that would be better. I can manage it if it's silenced. And the angel said, I won't silence it, but with your permission, I'll kill it, and you'll be free of it forever. And the lizard, recognizing the threat it's under, starts talking even faster, even more to the character whose shoulder it's on, telling it lie after lie after lie. Like, yeah, this might not be a perfect situation, but at least we're together. Yeah, we might have a really bad setup down in hell, but at least we'll have one another. Like, yeah, this is less than ideal, but at least you know it. And lie after lie after lie after lie at a frantic pace, the lizard is speaking to this man. And the angel, once again, very calmly says kill it. You'll be free of it. And I think that's how we think about our, you know, deviated life, right? Like, yeah, it's not perfect. We all recognize the ways that this world aren't as they should be, but at least we know it. At least we have some control here, and we can make compromises to navigate our way through it and find some, something resembling contentment. I don't want you to kill it, even though it's been so much trouble for me. And the lie that is continually whispered in our ear is that our kingdom, because it's familiar, is freer, it's safer, and perhaps even more moral. There's a, there's a British actor who's, who's incredibly gifted. He's, he's quite famous, Stephen Fry. Uh, you've all probably seen something with Stephen Fry in it. He's one of my favorites. And he's also an, uh, a famous, outspoken protest atheist. 
and he was asked during an interview, say you die and you arrive at the pearly gates and everything you thought was wrong turns out to be true. What do you say to God when you meet him? And Stephen kind of sat back in his armchair. He thought, and he got a little smirk. And then he sat forward, you know, with, with the intensity of a resolute answer. And he said, God, bone cancer in children, what's that about? How dare you create a world where there is so much suffering that isn't our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. You're utterly, utterly evil. Why would I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? And he sits back in his chair. And the interviewer, surely not expecting that reply, said, and you think you'd get in with that answer? And then Stephen boldly snapped back, no, but I wouldn't want to. The moment you banish God, the world becomes simpler, cleaner, purer, and more worth living. In other words, the lizard is whispering, your kingdom is more moral. You don't want God's design. Another example, Peter Clark, he's an author and an editor, and he became famous, or at least kind of hit public attention, when he suggested that the true hero of the Bible is Satan. And he said in an interview, Lucifer's role is to call BS on God the tyrant and to give Adam and Eve the knowledge they need to flourish in the real world. Where God says, have faith in me alone and don't ever question what I tell you. Lucifer responds, in essence, no, you should always question the tyrant. Don't believe any authority figure just because they tell you to believe them. Do your own research and figure out what's true for you. By following Lucifer's advice of seeking knowledge and wisdom for ourselves, we ultimately abandoned religious superstition. We cultivated universal humanist values and we developed the scientific process. Literally everything we enjoy about the modern world came from Lucifer, including modern technology, modern medicine, and the ability to live in a pluralistic society. In other words, the lizard is whispering, your kingdom is better. Questions are allowed there. You don't want God's design. And then to give one final example, there's this old historic building in Chicago I've walked by a few times. Um, it's this really, really cool, ornate, historic-looking building uh, of primarily stone and brick. Just this awesome building. And etched in the stone above the door is this quote. And the quote is, the greatest right a nation can afford its people is the right to be left alone. The greatest right a nation can afford its people is the right to be left alone. Now, there's, there, there may be a libertarian or two in the room nodding their head and like, yeah, that sounds actually pretty nice. <laughs> I don't disagree with that. Kind of the tragic irony, though, is that building is now the seediest of strip clubs. It's the idea of let me do what I want, including reducing women to a mechanism for my sexual gratification, and you have to leave me alone while I do it. My right is to do what I want. In other words, the lizard is whispering, your kingdom is freer. 
you don't want God's design. And the heart that begins to believe the whispers of the little lizard is precisely what Paul is referring to in our passage when he speaks of a heart that has become darkened, right? God is saying, you have become convinced that my design, my kingdom is worse than yours. Have you ever wondered why we find addressing sin so offensive? We shudder at the thought of doing it. It's because we disagree, with what God is saying. It's us informing God in not so uncertain terms. The design for life inside our kingdom is actually far greater than yours. So stop calling it anything but that. It's more just, it's safer, it's freer, and it's just better for me. So get out of it and keep your opinions about it away. And God says, with a voice of tenderness and care. It's none of those things. Can I kill it? Last week, we were all given an assignment by Mike. Ask someone two questions. What is wrong with the world and how do we fix it? And I think the answer to this first question is, the world is such a total deviation from God's design and we like it that way. That's what's wrong with the world. Because here we are afforded this mirage of power, but it's little more than that. It's little more than a mirage. We were compelled away outside of God's design because we were promised more power. We were promised more influence. We were promised more opportunity. We were promised these things that we thought God was withholding. It's not true. Referring once more to Lewis's novel, The Great Divorce, I think one of the most compelling images for me this gives you a peek inside hell. And, you know, it's not the, like, dark, burning, pitchfork place that kind of is popularized. <laughs> but it's this wide, just endless, expansive land. And if, if you want land, you can have it as much as you want. If you want something, all you have to do is, is think about it, and it's there. I want a mansion on a hill. It's there. I want a meal. It's there. I have this idea that anything I want, I can have in an instant. But the tragic irony in the story is that the food that they can think of and have has no taste. And it doesn't satisfy in the least. These mansions on these hills that they're able to construct at a thought have no roof. And it's constantly raining. So this house does little to actually protect them from anything. And in fact, inside the house, there's no place to rest. It just is this roofless arena for ceaseless pacing. That's the kind of power that we are afforded. We deviated. And we decided we liked it that way. But it was all a mirage. Well, I promised you good news. Remember? The personality and social psychology bulletin said I should, and Jesus afforded me the opportunity. So here goes. You know how our second question was, how do we fix it? Well, the paradoxical good news is we cannot. Paul makes this plain, painfully clear, especially in chapter 3, when he says, There is no one righteous. All have turned away, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The enticement that ensnared humanity was take more than what God is offering. 
build more than what he has given. Follow your impulses and ignore his ideas. And the undoing of this, the glide path back into the design of God is the complete opposite of this impulse. It's surrender. It's renouncing the things that we have built and accepting the things that have been offered. Now, this can posture itself as a, as a terrifying thing, right? Like, God's going to be so irritated. I rebel. I can't just come back, right? Sky Jathani, who's, who's one of my favorite authors, he, he has a podcast as well, kind of says, most of Western evangelicalism reads John 3 as, for God so hated the world that he sent his only son. Or to say another way, for God was so annoyed that he had to send his son. That's how we tend to think of the personality of God acting in our rescue. And I would say, this is the last whisper of the lizard. Kill it. In Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, um, he describes the attitude that God has towards forgiving um, in this really cool picture. Um, I don't remember it entirely, so I might embellish a bit, but it's still going to work. Here we go. So Dane kind of invites you to imagine that there's this incredibly deadly disease that's, that's occurring in, in tribal settings in Africa. And this, and this young doctor spends his whole career learning how to treat and cure that particular disease, a place where no one is going and a place where death is happening every day. And he discovers a cure for this disease at long last and as fast as he can. He leaves everything of his Western world behind and he goes and he lives amongst these people and he offers them, I have the cure. You don't have to die from this anymore. But he's met with broad skepticism and rejection. And every day, he watches more people unnecessarily die from this disease, offering them all the while the cure that he's discovered. And then one day, a brave villager steps up and says, okay, fine, give me the shot. I'll, I'll take the cure. And Dane says, can you imagine the excitement of the doctor who brought the cure? Just jumping, pounding the pavement. Yes! Yes! Finally, this is why I came. Let me heal you. The whisper of the lizard might be, God's going to be pissed. When in reality, we say every week, he delights in showing mercy. That's the picture we have in mind. He never tires of offering forgiveness to his people. Because and, and in the middle of this entire discussion... Paul says in chapter 2, verse 4, God's kindness leads to repentance. God's kindness leads to repentance. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. My design, my order, the thing I'm offering to you has come near to you. Accept it through my son Jesus and we will celebrate that we were afforded the opportunity to heal you. So we come to the table every week. And I wonder if we've ever noticed something. I really kind of thought about it for the first time this week. The very words 
that enticed humanity outside of the kingdom of God, that caused us to deviate from his design or take and eat. You deserve more than he's giving you. Take and eat. Take for yourself and eat. And Jesus undoes our rebellion. He undoes our deviation with the same words. This is my body given for you. Take and eat. It is everything that you have been clamoring for. Take and eat. And it's freely offered. The very thing that caused us to flee is the same thing he uses to bring us back. Take and eat. Let's pray together. Father, we are sorry. We are sorry that we looked at what you offered us and we said, that's not enough. We want something more. We want to be freer. We want to be safer. We want anything else. How silly. But what a gift that you have purchased our way back into your kingdom and you welcome us back with overwhelming joy and compassion and excitement. And you say to us, take and eat. May we be good recipients of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.